0: Good afternoon. Today is Wednesday, the 11th of October, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to have David Scott back with us. And we're also joined by Debbie Evans. Now, we're in a time of momentous events, and it's clear that uh, what has taken place in Israel has really resonated with many members of our audience. And we've had quite a lot of comment back in. We've had some robust emails. We've had passion and we've had opinion. And we're just going to start off today's news by echoing back just a little fragment of of what our audience has said to us.
1: Uh, yes, indeed. So uh, this was one uh, thanking it for Vanessa's report on Monday. Uh, here we have another one uh, doing quite the opposite. And my first comment on this uh, Brian, is just how uh, polarizing the events in the Middle East uh, clearly are with uh, with many, many people, uh, including our audience, uh, and that has been reflected in the communications that we've had. Now, I would say that uh, around uh, 60% would be uh, taking a pro-Israeli position on this and 40% taking a pro-Palestine position on this, but I just wanted, before we go into David's uh, and his report on this. I just wanted to mention uh, this particular tweet because uh, this is Mark Curtis uh, talking about uh, the Royal Navy assisting the Israeli blockade of Gaza because somebody had actually written to us saying that, uh, you know, Gaza Strip isn't really an open air prison because they have the uh, coast of the Mediterranean that they can escape from or or the, uh, uh, the section of Gaza, which borders with Egypt to escape from. In fact, that isn't really the case. But anyway, uh, I just wanted to to mention that that was one of the issues raised. Uh, So, David, uh, let's come to you. Now, of course, you've just returned from uh, Israel uh, yourself. Uh, You take us through what you've got.
2: Yes. So I was over in Israel for just over a week um, uh, for um, what Christians generally refer to as Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, in uh, Jewish parlance, uh, Sukkot is, is what the festival's called. And uh, the, first, the first inkling I had that something might be stirring was on Wednesday. I put it down to the usual amount of stirring and trying to trying to generate trouble. I didn't anticipate what actually happened, but I think it was linked. So here we've got Al Jazeera uh, reporting. Israeli settlers storm Al-Aqsa Mosque complex on fifth day of Sukkot. Um they attempted to perform Talmudic rituals. And, and this this is nonsense, this article. It's complete fabrication. And it's in its own terms, you can tell it's a complete fabrication because after the description of storming, uh it, it became dozens of Israeli settlers settlers forced away onto the flashpoint Al-Aqsa Mosque complex, um, according to the Waqif Department. Um now Uh, I was up there actually the following day, there was nothing happening, there was no storming, there was no violence, there was no nothing. What there was, was what there always is. You have, uh, it's an Islamic uh, holy site, it's operated by the Waqif, it's generally used for for that purpose, Um, there are set times of the day when tourists and that includes Jewish tourists, are allowed up to see the site. And historically, the Jews haven't gone, because uh, for religious reasons, it's too holy, so they haven't gone. That's changed in recent years, so now there are Jews that go up. They are assembled into small groups, and uh, some police go with them, partly to protect them, I think mostly to stop there being any trouble. They make sure they don't pray, they make sure they don't sing, There's nothing religious or allowed to happen if you're Jewish, but you're allowed to walk around. And that's what was happening. Completely standard, nothing to see. But Al Jazeera was putting out a headline that suggested people were storming holy sites. And this is to get people agitated and worked up and prepared to do unspeakable things. So um, nothing happened the next couple of days. I kind of dismissed this thought as, well it's not going to lead to anything, that's good. Um, And then on uh, Saturday, I woke up to this sound. So that's the air raid siren in Jerusalem, uh, alerting people to incoming rocket fire from Gaza. Um, so there was um, quite a number of, of distant bangs and crumps and, and and vibrations through the ground. There was nothing particularly near where we happened to be. Um, there was um, no trouble within Jerusalem, which obviously is a mixed city. There's no trouble within Jerusalem itself, um, although I think there was on the outskirts some... Um, some disturbances, um, and when we started to get information coming in of what was happening down on the Gaza border. Now, the next the next bit of video we'll play is uh, provided by uh, Hamas or its supporters, and it details what uh, what their operation involved. Now, here you see um, drones being used to take out the watchtowers along the uh, border fence. Oh, that seems to have stopped. Keep going. Uh, well, okay, All right. okay. So what then happened uh, was you had uh, people in uh, paragliders and um, uh, g- going over the going over the, uh, uh, the the wall, going over the barrier, the, the fence, um, and uh, they were obviously armed. And then there was uh, holes bl- blown through the fence, um, and uh, through these uh, gaps came uh, people on trucks, people on motorbikes. So. A, a, and many hundreds, it would seem now probably well over a thousand insurgents uh, came across um, the, the, the Gaza border into Israel and uh, went into the hinterland around about Gaza. Um, and uh, the, all when this was happening, there was um, significant rocket fire coming from Gaza going towards uh, various um, population centres in Israel roundabout, including Tel Aviv and uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Ashdod as well uh, got a lot of um, lot of uh, uh, rocket fire. Um, now, um, what then we started to find out was that the the insurgents that had come into Israel were, were, were murdering civilians, were killing civilians in large numbers. We have some video here. It's pretty harrowing. I'd have to warn people to... Some of the sites are extremely unpleasant, and if you are not prepared to to, to see that or don't want to see that, probably give us uh, three or four minutes to to get through this next section. But it will will quickly take you through some of the sites that we see we've seen uh, published on um, social media of what was happening in and around uh, uh, the, the the Gaza border area um, on uh, Saturday. <laughs> So that was uh, appeared to be this the uh, body of an IDS soldier uh being um mistreated um uh, by uh, a crowd. Um uh this next one is uh, dealing with um uh, some of the uh the, the civilian casualties Uh-oh! Uh, that was a young uh, a young girl who'd been at the music festival um and you you could see uh, the men spitting at her her body there um her mother um was able to identify her daughter from that video based on her hair cut and a tattoo uh, and has apparently heard that she's actually not dead but in a critical condition in the hospital. I don't know if that's true or not um so maybe maybe that that young lady will survive. We will. We will no doubt hear in due course. Um, and um, we have. We have a couple more. are Okay.
3: Shall we we see?
4: We're good. we The
2: So you see, you're dealing with uh, civilians. You're dealing with people being pulled out of cars, uh, ambushed. Um, uh, this is not. This is not uh, a war or resistance or anything like this. This is a pogrom. This is this is murder. Uh, uh, and then the next one is particularly hard to watch. Uh, this is um, a, basically a family who have been trapped in a in a in a room, and you will see what happens. So what happened, uh, the information started to come in uh, that this was what was happening in the villages and towns round about Gaza. Um, and then the, the death toll started to mount. It was, it was 50, it was 100, it was 200, it was 250. I, the last figure I saw was some 1,200 and well over 2,000 hospitalized. So that gives you some sort of idea of the scale and more on that in, in later analysis in the news. Now, uh, the Times of Israel here reports um, about at least 40 babies killed. This was one massacre site that foreign press were taken to by the IDF. This was always a battle of information as well. This uh, happened before even the local Israeli press was showing any of these sites. Um, there is reports which have been widely uh, picked up in the Western media of some some babies were beheaded. Uh, a quote from an Israeli general, it's not war, it's not a battlefield. You see the babies, the mothers, the fathers in the bedrooms, in the protection rooms uh, and how the terrorists killed them. It's not a war, it's a massacre. And we have a small extract of a report from that area yeah. as well.
1: Yeah, before we just show that, David, I just want to make the point that today the Israeli military were saying that there's no evidence, whatever, that there were any beheadings of babies. This, this is one of these uh, things that I, I'm absolutely going to question whether how much truth there is in, in some of the stories that are coming out. Yeah,
2: Yeah. it's, it's, been, it's been widely picked up, but it's, but there's been no confirmation. I think that's a point well made. There's no confirmation of the beheading stories. There's plenty of confirmation of the, of the, of the shooting and the casualties. Um, there are um, that particular story. It was notable that it was picked up widely across Western media uh, and given huge prominence um, without being confirmed. And I thought that was um, uh, not, not the wisest thing for the Western media to do because it's all inflaming the situation.
1: A point well made, Mike. Okay, so let's have a look at this video clip then.
2: David, it's hard to even explain exactly just the mass
5: casualties that happened right here. In fact, the Israeli military says they still don't have a clear number, but I'm talking to some of the soldiers and they say what they've witnessed as they've been walking through
2: these different houses, these different communities, uh, babies, their heads cut off. That's what they said, gunned down, families completely gunned down in their beds. You can see some of these soldiers right now comforting each other. Many of them reserves uh, who jumped into action, leaving their own families behind as well. Not knowing the sheer horror that they were about to come to. They say they've never experienced anything like this. This is nothing that anyone could have even imagined when you're walking through here. And uh, with the shock and the initial lack of response from the Israeli military, lack of protection from the Israeli military, there was eventually a response. Um, they started to regain control of the area around uh, Gaza. This took several days, might not even be complete yet as we speak. Um, and there was then uh, shelling and bombing of Gaza City in retaliation. And we've got here um, a, a report from the New York Times Um uh, nowhere to hide in Gaza as Israeli onslaught continues. Uh, Israeli airstrikes flat mosques over the heads of worshippers. At least two hospitals and two centres run by Palestinian Red Crescent Society being uh, so have been hit. so of two schools run by the UN agency that helps Palestinian refugees. And do we have a photograph of that? Maybe we don't. Um, th- there is a, uh, a photograph which shows the the rubble quite uh, quite clearly. A ah. uh, very high level of disruption. Dis- uh, dis- uh, destruction uh, within Gaza City um, and uh, a, a death toll there, which is now not far from the death toll within Israel itself. Um, New York Times co- continues to strike. The comments. part of Israel's response to the attack on Saturday when hundreds of Palestinian gunmen swept across the border, killing more than 1,000 people and taking around 150 hostages, including children and old people. Um, on Monday, Israel's Defence Minister announced a complete siege of Gaza, saying no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel would be allowed in. And uh, if we can just finish this, this photograph of, of a small Palestinian girl, uh, clearly in shock, uh, sitting on a hospital bed somewhere in Gaza. Um, and uh, I think that is a face that sums up events rather well.
1: Um, okay, David, thank you. Uh, I want to mention uh, Joseph Burrell here, because we start looking at the political response to this. This is from the European High Representative, the so-called Foreign Minister of Europe, uh, as people start to maybe walk back on the position uh, that they originally had a, a little bit. So he said this, uh, Israel has a right to self-defense, but it has to be done within, within international law. Cutting water, cutting electricity, cutting food to a mass of civilian people is against international law. This, of course, uh, was part of the response from Israel that they uh, closed the borders again and uh, have cut these things off. Uh, Burrell went on to say this, If we can put that back, yeah, thank you. The Palestinian people are also suffering is uh, the point that he was wanting to make here. Uh, And then I just wanted to highlight uh, this from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. because uh, he said, This ignominious, unprovoked and barbaric attack on Israel must be met with world condemnation and unequivocal support for the Jewish state's right to self-defense. We must provide Israel with whatever it needs to defend itself now. As president, I'll make sure that our policy is unambiguous uh, so the enemies of Israel will think long and hard before attempting aggression of any kind. Uh, well, the response from Scott Ritter, as just one, uh, was uh, saying this, I like RFK Jr. I think he's the best choice for President of the United States. He's positioned himself as the peace candidate, and this is a tweet I fear that may have sunk his chances. Israel's policy, policies regarding Palestine are indefensible. Bobby well, we should be promoting an equitable peace settlement, not war.
0: Yeah. What do you think? Well, at the end of the day, Mike, we should all be going for not war. This is the key thing. Whatever's caused this and whyver it's happening, we all ought to be calling for an instant cessation of, of the violence and and the brutality. And until we and wider media and national politicians start calling for this, of course, this is going to go on. So it's stopping the violence is the first thing we should all be doing, surely.
1: Uh, David, what's the political response uh, otherwise?
2: So, we'll start off with B.B. Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, uh, making a speech about events and about what will happen next. Israel is at war.
4: We didn't want this war. It was forced upon us in the most brutal and savage way. But though Israel didn't start this war, Israel will finish it. Once the Jewish people were stateless once the Jewish people were defenseless, no longer. Hamas will understand that by attacking us, they've made a mistake of historic proportions. We will exact a price that will be remembered by them and Israel's other enemies for decades to come. The savage attacks that Hamas perpetrated against innocent Israelis are mind-boggling, slaughtering families in their homes, massacring hundreds of young people at an outdoor festival, kidnapping scores of women, children and elderly, even Holocaust survivors. Hamas terrorists bound, burned and executed children. They are savages. Hamas is ISIS. And just as the forces of civilizations united to defeat ISIS, the forces of civilization must support Israel in defeating Hamas. I want to thank President Biden for his unequivocal support. I want to thank leaders across the world who are standing with Israel today. I want to thank the people and Congress of the United States of America. In fighting Hamas, Israel is not only fighting for its own people, it is fighting for every country that stands against barbarism. Israel will win this war, and when Israel wins, the entire civilized world wins.
1: Uh, David, I, I, I wonder will Israel win this war? I mean, he's acknowledging that it's a war, but uh, uh, my wor- my concern about a lot of the rhetoric that has been coming out of the Israeli uh, establishment in the last day or two is, has been this uh, narrative of animals that the Palestinians are animals, uh, and and should be treated as animals, and that that I find pretty disturbing.
2: Well, this is this is one of the one of the risks as these things escalate that you get you get the view that the other side are subhuman, and that's one step towards making them able to be killed in any brutal way that, that, is, that is selected because if they're not fully human, then they don't have rights and there's no requirement for compassion. Um, we know from the um, the the history of the Jewish people that, that this is a process that, that goes into very very bad places, um, and I saw those, and I was also concerned by those comments coming out from. I think it was military people within the Israeli state. Uh, the comments there from uh, Bibi Netanyahu, Haman, Hamas is ISIS. I, I get that. I look at how these people behave, and I look at what was happening in Syria, and I see it's it's essentially the same thing. It's essentially the same mindset, um, and. But he also said that that we used to be stateless and defenseless. Uh, One of the things, we'll we'll come to this in more detail later, they've now got a state, but they were still defenseless. And the implications of that on Israel are going to take some time to work out. Uh, We have here a speech from the UN. um, I think a masterpiece of what about it, and it manages to, it's interesting what it doesn't mention, but it does at least say that um, we're we're regretting the loss of innocent life. Uh, So if we could play that, please
6: the OIC member states, we express our deep concerns over the loss of innocent lives in the occupied Palestinian territory and elsewhere. Regrettably, this whole huge loss of lives and unabated violence is a sad reminder of more than seven decades of illegal foreign occupation, aggression, and disrespect for the international law including UNSC resolutions. The 16 years of illegal blockade of Gaza continues to raise question over the applicability of international law and fundamental freedoms to the innocent civilian population. Efforts to normalize and perpetuate illegal foreign occupation is breeding violence. There is a need for immediate steps to ensure the realization of the right to self-determination of the Palestinian people and also achieving a just two-state solution on the borders of June 4, 1967 with East Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Palestine. We call on all parties to exercise restraint and honor their human rights obligations. In this context, the so-called declaration of war and attacks on civilian population and their properties is deeply distressing. We remain concerned about the human cost of the escalating situation. Our hearts and prayers also go out to our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan owing to the devastating earthquake and huge loss of life. We request observing one-minute silence. For the loss of innocent lives, including women, children and the elderly, it is also an occasion to remember victims of decades of foreign occupation in the occupied Palestinian territory. I request you all to stand for one minute to honour those victims.
2: So we're honouring the victims, but we're never once mentioning the words Israeli or Jew. I thought that was quite interesting. And also... The idea that uh, just two-state solution on the borders of June Fourth, nineteen sixty-seven, those those days, if they ever existed, are long gone. That's not that's not rational, real politics anymore. That's that's a uh, incantation of a of a belief system. And I would point out that the Palestine Palestine uh, Liberation Organization was founded before nineteen sixty-seven, when those borders were in place. That. Those borders represent the line of exhaustion from the previous war in 1948. They don't represent anything that is the epitome of fairness or equity or anything like this that they're they're held up to be. So a very disappointing speech from the UN. Uh, Far better uh, was um, uh, the response uh, from a Palestinian representative to Britain, essentially the ambassador from the PLO uh, to Britain, uh, in a... Interview with the BBC's Kirsty Wark. We have a short clip of that as well.
7: You cannot condone the killing of civilians in Israel, can you, nor the killing of families?
3: No, we don't condone. And we are very clear, uh, 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 Kirsty. We reject uh, any targeting or harming of civilians from all sides. And you are talking to a Palestinian representative, official, the ambassador that I represent, my government, the PLO, the national mm-hmm. movement of Palestine. And we have been committed to this for 30 years, not just today or yesterday, for 30 years since the signing of the Oslo Accords. Uh, yeah. We have committed to nonviolence. We have committed to negotiations, and so you, as you know. Yes, and so so this so you, is nothing new. That's no. why this question, this question, uh, we have done everything in our power to find a different path.
7: But we have a situation now, As you heard there from Mark, uh, that Hamas may be, may be an empty threat, uh, threatening to kill hostages. Do you, you condemn that kind of action?
3: Listen, uh, hostages m- must be protected mm-hmm. and must be made safe and kept safe. Uh, uh, absolutely. This is, has, has no uh, discussion whatsoever. We, uh, we, we, we must return the moral uh, high ground, uh, and Israel must immediately seize targeting civilians and by the way Kirsty, allow me to say this this is an Israeli military doctrine they call it the Iron Dome whenever there is such a, an incident they go after the civilians to pressure the fighters so you've heard one of these well we know they've been
0: a lot just, of just two today. minutes ago
3: he wanted to starve the people in Gaza he wanted to uh, cut electricity but, and water these are war crimes collective punishment so there is a possibility that both the UK and the European Commission will cut aid to Palestinians. What's your reaction to that? That would be very, very counterproductive and it doesn't serve anything. Well, they will do exactly what is Israel doing. They will do exactly the collective punishment and, and, and punishing the people who has nothing to do with this. My cousin is not Hamas. In fact, her husband works for the Palestinian Authority, the so, opponents of Hamas. These kids, four years and two years, have nothing to do with Hamas. Everybody, including these silly uh, ideas in the world, are punishing the people that have nothing to do with this.
2: So this is, this, is, um, uh, this is a point well made, right? And, and it's important to remember that in the face of this horrendous violence, there's, there's, there's uh, Palestinian voices who have been looking for peace and for another way forward and been doing so for decades and are still there. And um, I thought he made his case uh, very well there. Um, we are a bit short for time, I think. Uh, some of the things on politics that can perhaps wait till uh, extra time. Um, I think it's worth maybe just mentioning briefly that the First Minister of Scotland, um, Hamza Yusuf, who has uh, some of his relatives, in-laws are currently in Gaza, uh, has written to the British government. He says, as a close friend and ally of Israel, I think he's referring to the British government and not himself. It's not entirely clear from the way he's formulated the English. I therefore ask the UK government to call on the government of Israel to ensure innocent civilians are protected and to put in place an immediate ceasefire to allow safe passage of civilians through the Rafah border. Furthermore, it should, be a, a human, this should, it should open a humanitarian corridor into Gaza to allow supplies, including food, fuel, water, and medical supplies, so those civilians who are trapped helpless and cannot leave. Um, finally, I call on the international community to be proactive and work towards an immediate ceasefire and long-lasting peace that sees Israelis and Palestinians treated as equals. Um, right, which obviously doesn't get to the heart of the problem, because... It doesn't say treated as equals by whom. The key point is it must be by each other. Um, the left-wing response has been pretty uh, extreme initially, and then there's been some rowing back. But rather than take time in the main news for that, uh, I think we'll leave that, that to extra time and
1: move on, Mike. Thank you, David. Uh, Brian, let's move to Australia. Oh, sorry, was, was that was that later? No, we're,
0: we're moving on to um, your Israel section.
1: Okay, uh, so the next thing to talk about here is uh, the letter from the Home Office today from Suella Braverman to uh, Chief Constables. Uh, and it, uh, I'm not going to talk too much about this, but it says, Dear all, uh, you will be aware and no doubt share my disgust at the barbaric terrorist attacks we've seen committed against Israel in recent days. Uh, It goes on to say, as you know, Hamas is a prescribed terrorist organization in the UK in its entirety. It is therefore a criminal offense for a person in the UK to belong to Hamas, to invite support for Hamas, to express support for Hamas whilst being reckless as to whether the expression will encourage support of it, arrange a meeting in support of Hamas, to wear clothing or carry articles in public, which arouse reasonable suspicion that an individual is a member or supporter of Hamas, or to publish an image of an article such as a flag or a logo in the same circumstances. Uh, It goes on to say behaviors that are legitimate in some circumstances, for example, the waving of a Palestinian flag uh, may not be legitimate, such as when intended to glorify acts of terrorism. But again, it's not defined how anybody is supposed to work out uh, whether somebody who's waving a Palestinian flag is doing so in support of the Palestinian cause in general, uh, or in uh, support of Hamas. Uh, so that is uh, potentially a dangerous direction to go on. Uh, and then I just want to end with this, uh, because of course, whenever Ukraine kicked off, we immediately saw the British government and the British media promoting the idea that people go to Ukraine and fight on behalf of Ukraine. Uh, and we're starting to see the same type of rhetoric in the uh, UK press. So There's a Sky News talking about a former uh, US, uh, former Israeli citizen, or an Israeli citizen who was formerly IDF, rather. Uh, going back to take part and rejoin in the military there, Uh, basically banging war drums uh, once again. And I'll just be very interested to see how that narrative builds in the mainstream press in the coming days.
0: Okay, thank you for that, Mike. Well, I was going to put in some of my thoughts on what was happening. I'll kick off with the BBC here because it's been fascinating to see what they've been saying. So here, this was from an hour or so ago, live scenes from Gaza will be more difficult to witness, the Israeli army. And the BBC does actually state that the Israeli military has been pounding Gaza with airstrikes. And there can be no doubt that uh, the majority of those airstrikes are on primarily civilian Targets, and I say to that that, of course, if the Russians had adopted uh, this tactic in Ukraine, they would have been instantly branded as international terrorists. But, of course, they haven't done that. But this is what's in store for Gaza. Uh, This is a bit more of the BBC's reporting, and again, it's interesting that they come straight in on what's happening to the Palestinian population. So, they've got a quote from A Palestinian health ministry, Gaza, 1,055 killed, 5,100 injured, of which 60% are women and children. And of course, if these statistics are true, this is utterly horrific. And uh, it shows an immensely draconian response by the Israelis. But let's also bring in this aspect because, oh dear, Ukraine has now gone. If you look at the BBC's reporting, there is effectively no coherent or recent reporting on what's happening in the, on the battlefield in Ukraine. And the truth of the matter is that the Ukrainian counteroffensive has largely petered out and uh, the attacks that are taking place are resulting in these horrific casualties on the Ukrainian side, very little of which is reported in Western media and certainly none of it is being reported in the BBC. So it appears that uh, events in Israel have helped to draw attention away from Ukraine. But I also want to stress that the Americans are now fully committed to supporting um, Israel. So their latest and greatest aircraft carrier, the USS Harry uh, S. Truman, has gone into the Eastern Mediterranean. Now, just an image of this carrier to show how vast it is. And of course, when carriers like this move effectively, they are moving um, an equivalent number of of aircraft fighters and support aircraft and helicopters bigger than most nation states' air forces. So this is indeed a mighty warship. It's going uh, with, with a number of other ships because these type of ships have to have protection, and I can tell our audience that whatever the aircraft on board, the captain of this vessel is going to be worried about submarines in the eastern Mediterranean. But uh, this is my key point that around the events that are unfolding, uh, the big problem is that good people, most people are good people, but good people have trouble thinking evil, and they certainly have trouble thinking about evil on the sorts of scale that it's being that it's being unleashed in uh, Ukraine and the Middle East, uh, but uh, what what my mind says to me is that events in Israel are the perfect storm to cover up another uh, to cover up a number of events. Uh, the first one is the failing Ukrainian offensive, and the fact that that war was a creation by the West in order to achieve regime change in Russia that agenda failing, but now, of course, we're seeing nothing about the failure of the neocon war in Ukraine. It's been overtaken by Israel. Uh, Israel is now overtaking the failed Syrian regime change revolution. So that's uh, uh, been nicely pushed into the long grass. We've got a failing election campaign by Biden. Uh, We've also got the fact that uh, the the events in Israel are the perfect storm to get rid of that nasty little Gaza problem. And uh, I make no apologies for using the expression culling of those Gaza animal people, because this is the sort of language now being used by uh, Israel. And lastly, But not least, we've got uh, its perfect cover for the failing COVID pandemic narrative. So my mind says that while these immense events are unfolding um, and we're going to see more and more um, information in particularly the Western media, other critical subjects are going to slide away into the long grass. So think about the headline. The problem is that good people have trouble thinking evil. Uh, The next point that I've considered is the idea that uh, US, UK, Israeli, NATO intelligence somehow failed and did not know anything was brewing. David, you've told us that you had a gut feeling that something was uh, afoot when you were there in Israel, but we are led to believe that the intelligence services of the Western world and Israel did not have a clue as to what was happening. And if we just concentrate people's minds a bit on what intelligence means in this sense, of course, it means human beings on the ground, living amongst the local community, infiltrating their networks in order to know what's happening and what's about to go down. Uh, We've got massive video surveillance, and it's clear that a huge number of weapons were somehow brought into Gaza Strip, but apparently nobody knew. Uh, We've got huge web-based intelligence these days, which is incredibly effective, but apparently nobody knew who was talking to whom and what they were planning. And uh, we've also got signals intelligence, the listening into other forms of communication, which Alex Thompson, of course, has spoken to us about. Uh, Nothing was heard on that either. And then, of course, we've got the huge surveillance capacity of space and drone assets, both military and civilian. So I personally find it extremely unlikely that this was not known about, in which case this event was allowed to go ahead in order to achieve perhaps some of those other factors which I've already mentioned. So difficult problems like a failing war in Ukraine can be overridden with all of the events around Israel. Cruel, callous, unbelievably cruel and callous, But this is what happens when you have people worldwide prepared to deal in utter evil. And I'd like to remind our audience that it's only been the UK column that has warned people in the UK about the um, uh, partnering of uh, UK intelligence services directly with uh, Israeli intelligence services. This goes back to 2014 and a Memorandum of Understanding on Digital Government, uh, where Francis Maud from the uh, Conservatives was boasting that our security systems were now going to be fully integrated with Israeli intelligence systems, in particular GCHQ and the Israeli Defense Unit 8200. Uh, But it also included linkages into the level of universities. And a little bit later on in uh, the timeline, you were reporting about this organization, um, uh, Mike, where we've got uh, even more cooperation with Israel about data-driven behavioral change. So I find this uh, an impossible idea that uh, basically nobody knew. Uh, I say to our audience, somebody knew Uh, but they didn't give a warning, and they didn't give a warning because events uh, were wanted. Those events were expected to happen, and the idea was to allow people to uh, do their worst. So our headline at the time was, when did the British public ever agree to Israeli military surveillance of their private lives? That was one angle, but we now see events in the Middle East. And I'd also like to ask a key question. What has BBC Media Action been doing in Gaza? They've been there since the summer of 2014. Uh, they're operating, of course, through the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Uh, in Syria, BBC Media Action was boasting of having worked with people calling for overthrow of the government and assisting that process. So has the same thing uh, taken place in uh, Gaza. I can't answer that question, but I'm highly suspicious. So those are my thoughts. I think there's a lot of questions to be answered, and it's going to take time for any of us to actually work out exactly what has happened, what is happening, and what is going to happen around these horrific events in the Middle East.
1: So where does that leave us? David, what what are the sort of open questions? Well, let,
2: let me just say a few yeah, let me just say a few words of what Brian said there. Uh, firstly, the, um, the calling of people animals, quote, this was from Defence Minister Yorv Gallant. He called for complete siege in the enclave, quote, we are fighting animals and we are acting accordingly. If there was any soundness in the Israeli government, and I don't think there is, he would be sacked, right? Uh, he's shown himself to be unfit to be in that position.
1: Well well that's true, David, but um, but some of the language that Netanyahu was using in his in the speech that you showed earlier was was he didn't use the word animal. I can't remember the term he actually used, no, but it was no, it was along the same kind of lines.
2: Well uh, the 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 there were many thousands of barbarous acts there. So you have gotta cut my a little bit of slack, but calling the entire population calling for a a, a complete siege and we're we're fighting animals. I think that that goes Uh, over the line, I think he should go. Um, Secondly, uh, the the question Brian's raising is a question of intelligence, which is the next one I want to talk about. Uh, When I was over there, I wasn't just relaxing. You know, I was operating on behalf of the UK column and I managed to get myself a press pass to the International Christian Embassy, Jerusalem, Israel Day, um, which was being addressed by uh, Gilead Gamliel, who is the uh, Israeli minister for intelligence. They have a cabinet minister for intelligence. And she came on and she was introduced with a little joke. She says, Israeli minister for intelligence, she probably knows more about you than you do. And and the the crowd had a little chuckle at that, and it it seemed like quite a good joke at the time. Doesn't so much now. Now she's only been in post since January 2023. None of the cabinet particularly long served. And um, we'll see if she keeps her post. In Israel, one of the questions that's come up very quickly, very strongly, is how could this have happened? How could our defence forces, our intelligence agencies, not have seen this coming? So we've got a little clip here from um, a, an Israeli journalist who is looking at a conspiracy theory, is looking for something to explain, was this, was this done on purpose? So let's hear from uh, it's Efrat uh, Fenningson.
7: A year ago, there was a military operation in Gaza to prepare for such events and ongoingly there are trainings for these kind of scenarios. This raises serious questions for me anyway about Israeli intelligence. What happened? Two years ago, there there was a successful deployment of underground barriers with sensors to alert exactly on these kind of terrorist breaches. Israel has one of the most advanced and high tech armies. How come there was zero response to the border and fence breaching? I cannot understand that. Personally, I served in the IDF 25 years ago in the intelligence forces. There's no way, in my view, that Israel did not know of what's coming. A cat moving alongside the fence is triggering all forces. So this, what happened to the strongest army in the world? How come border crossings were wide open? Something is very wrong here. Something is very strange. This chain of events is very unusual and not typical for the Israeli defense system. So to me, this surprise attack seems like a planned operation on all fronts. This is a failure to protect the people of Israel for sure. Perhaps the biggest failure since the Yom Kippur war exactly 50 years ago, if not bigger. By the way, is it a coincidence? It's exactly 50 years ago, almost on the day. The Yom Kippur war was on October 6, 1973. If I was a conspiracy theorist, I would say that this feels like the work of the deep state. It feels like the people of Israel and the people of Palestine have been sold once again to the higher powers that be. At the same time, this is still very, very difficult to fathom.
2: So you see people within Israel are, start, are asking these same questions, Brian. Have we been sold out? Have our uh, intelligence agencies betrayed us? Uh, for a different view, we've got a, we've got a comment here from Scott Ritter um, uh, in uh, Consortium News. So he's talking about Israel's massive intelligence failure. He says the origins of Israel's intelligence failure can be traced to the decision to rely on AI instead of on the contrarian analysis of the earlier intelligence failure of a 1973 Yom Kippur war. So he he goes on and says um, uh, the history of success that Israel has enjoyed in identifying and responding to Hamas operations in the past um, success, this success manifested itself into a culture of complacency uh, resulting in the deaths of hundreds of Israeli citizens the very people the intelligence services were dedicated to protecting um, and he concludes that uh, denied the benefit of a contrarian approach to the analysis put in place in the aftermath of the uh, agreement uh, commission Israel set itself up for failure by not imagining a scenario where Hamas would capitalize on the Israeli overreliance on AI corrupting the alg- algorithms in a way to blind the computers and the human programmers to Hamas's true intention and capability. Hamas was able to generate a veritable ghost in the machine, corrupting Israeli AI and setting up the Israeli people and military for one of the most tragic chapters in the history of the Israeli nation. So he's saying it was complacency and over-reliance on AI and a genuine intelligence failure. Uh, my view is, is more on the side of Scott Ritter but I think there's many, many questions to be asked about this. We shouldn't rush to judgment. We should ask the questions and we should try and understand what happened. Um, just to finish this section, I have here a, a little photograph of um, the uh, mm. Egyptian forces crossing the Suez Canal in uh, 1973 in the Yom Kippur War.
1: Uh, no, no, we don't. Um,
2: no, we don't. Oh, we don't. Okay. Well, no. sorry about that. Um, uh I, I, had this, I had this in the slides list to, just to raise the issue of Yom Kippur War. This is very similar. 50 years on. It's a, it's a huge in, intelligence failure. In 1973, the Israelis did know that the attack was coming. They only had 24 hours' notice or so, and they started to sneak people back from the, the, the Yom Kippur um, holiday back towards the front lines, and they, they took a decision that they weren't going to go for a a a preemptive strike they were going to let the the, the blow land so that the whole world could see that they were not the aggressors this time as they'd been accused of being in nineteen sixty seven um, and what happened was the uh, the attack was far more powerful, far better organized with far better logistics um far more capable of putting significant forces across the canal than they'd ever imagined, and they found themselves seriously contemplating losing. Uh, and this was a huge shock to the system. Um, they talk about, that, that this, this journalist talked about, is it worse than Yom Kippur? It, this is, right? Because this is the greatest loss of Jewish life in one day since the Holocaust. This is worse than the Yom Kippur War. It's a greater failure. It's a more complete failure. It's a more complete failure to protect the country. It's not a military setback it's a complete military absence. That's one point. So we, we need to know how that happened. Um, my next question is why now? Right? It's been suggested that this has been instigated by Iran as part of a geopolitical process to stop the uh, alignment of Saudi and Israel and the normalisation of, of uh, relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Maybe... But there's, there's some, there is geopolitical planning at the heart of this and trying to figure out exactly what that is and say so reliably is, is going to be very important. And finally, um, where now? I don't think that Israel's the same after that attack. I think it's, it's the, the, the psychological effect on the population is going to take many years to sort out. Um, I I think the country's been changed. I think the entire geopolitical situation in the Middle East has been changed. Nothing is the same and we shouldn't expect it to be. There's a huge risk that it will escalate um, tragically from here. There's a huge risk that it will involve other nations and yet more suffering. Now, it may calm down and even if it does, things have changed, have changed fundamentally. So one of the things we have to try and understand is what that means for everybody what that means for all the innocent people on both sides of the Gaza fence who only want to sleep in peace when their day is done.
0: Okay, David, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Well, there's a lot more to be said, and we will be saying uh, more. And of course, different views and different opinions are critical if we are to move towards getting the facts and the truth.
1: Okay, okay. Uh, let's move on. If uh, you like what the UK Column's doing, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You can pick something up at the UK Column shop, but please do share any material you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org, uk. Uh, David, tomorrow, an interview with Jasper uh, Manchugo. Uh, just 20 seconds on this, please.
2: Jasper's a farmer in Kenya And he's uh, alive to the global warming scam and is talking about how farming operates in Kenya and what Kenyans need to make their lives better. And this includes more petrochemicals and access to energy. Um, He's a very interesting gentleman with many things to say on many topics. I really enjoyed talking to him and I hope you enjoy listening to the
1: interview. Okay, thank you. And... uh... Debbie, finally, welcome to the program. And uh, your interview that was went out yesterday is now on the website with Dr. Ross Jones.
5: Yes, um, do please share this very important information. Um, we're talking about injections and medications for children, pregnant mums, and babies.
1: Uh, and your blog is up.
5: Yeah, as well as all the topics that you can see there on my blog, um, I'm also covering other disasters that are going on around the world, and lest we forget that over 2,000 people have died from the recent um, earthquake in Afghanistan.
1: Okay, and a reminder again of Andrew Bridgen addressing the public on Friday the 20th of October in Parliament Square following his debate uh, on excess deaths in Parliament. Uh, so uh, COVID leaks here asking for people to turn up uh, at Parliament Square from 2pm to support Andrew. The debate itself uh, taking place in Parliament. Uh, the call is still for people to contact their MPs, to encourage MPs to take part in this debate. Uh, very briefly, a reminder of uh, the MHRA Not For Purpose t-shirt available now in the UK Column Shop. And then finally to mention the uh, symposium on 5G that we're running. Uh, next Tuesday, beginning at 7 p.m. UK time, Uh, and uh, well, we'll not mention specifically the speakers, but you can see them on screen there, Uh, and uh, we are looking forward to running that. So, Debbie, let's move then on to health matters, and uh, well, first of all, safety fears as non-medical staff learn neurosurgery on the job.
5: Yes, um, and we've been saying for quite a long time, you know, question everything, including who you are going to be seeing. Associate physicians, um, otherwise known as doctors, are assistant doctors. Uh, most of them have done uh, a university degree in life sciences or health, and then they've got a two-year bolt on. Most of them earn around between forty-one and forty-six thousand. But this is completely unregulated profession, and now we can see that non-medical staff are learning literally neurosurgery on the job and this goes on you know this isn't just neurosurgery and let's not forget that this is unregulated but we're also looking at other skills and admissions by um, associate physicians and one assistant of uh, associate physician said he was literally learning on the job and he was uh, drilling holes in patients heads um this is going on from the um first screenshot from the telegraph there's a bit more detail in it in the next screenshot and and you can see there that they're also doing lumbar punctures and lumbar punctures are, can be a very risky procedure and it's not something that I would want uh, being performed on me or any of my family if the person wasn't trained and if we move on one shot from that we can see that it's cystoscopies and uh, bladder examinations that are being done as well um, and tonsillectomies incredibly worrying uh, the fact with tonsillectomies and it doesn't stop there as you can see from that shot Um, a a nurse, uh, a nurse practitioner was performing a TAVI. Uh, This is a transcatheter aortic valve replacement. And I've got a member of my family who's had a TAVI. And uh, when they signed the consent form, they were told that there was a risk of death. So these are um, very serious procedures being carried out by very junior or even untrained people. So please ask who you're seeing. Um, And if we just uh, jump now onto uh, injections, and I just want to touch on the FDA. So the FDA have just uh, amended the emergency use authorization on this new Novavax um, shot. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't think we're in a state of emergency, are we, at the moment? So I'm not quite sure why they're amending the authorization. But if we go on to look um, a little bit further, we can see that the agency has also relied on its evaluation of safety and effectiveness data from clinical trials of Novavax COVID-19 vaccine adjuvanted. This is the original monovalent. This means basically that what they're doing is, as you can see in the bottom sentence there, the vaccines are managed using a similar process, not the same process. So what they're doing is they're using a recipe that they used last year. They've amended it. They've added a bit. They've taken away a bit. But rather than it go through any clinical trials or any studies, the clinical trial is going to be you because it's just been amended. And this is what we're finding with the injections coming down the line, all of the injections, whether they be Pfizer or Moderna or whoever. So if we go and look on um, Novavax's um, website, um, we can see that there they clarify that they've received updated emergency use authorization, emergency use. So, you know, again, we're not in an emergency. And if we go back and look a little bit deeper at Novavax, it says here, there that it, all of their evidence for this new injection is based on non-clinical data. In clinical trials, the most common adverse reactions associated with Novavax's prototype, and they go on to say vomiting, nausea, muscle pain, joint pain, and all of the other adverse reactions that you would normally say. But it also says, and this is very important Novavax COVID 19 vaccine adjuvanted 2023 to 2024 formula has not been approved or licensed by the FDA, but has been authorized for emergency use by the FDA under an EUA, that's an emergency use authorization, to prevent coronavirus disease and it's for use in individuals 12 years and over and then if we go further on into the Novavax site again we can see that we're looking at very serious adverse reacts side effects that have been reported in clinical trials so we can see myocarditis there but worryingly Right in the middle there, side effects that have been reported in post-authorization use with the Novavax COVID-19 vaccine. You can see all of those conditions there. And then underneath, these may not be all the possible side effects. Serious and unprecedented side effects may occur. The possible side effects are still being studied. And basically, if you've got a problem, go to the hospital. So um, I found that all this quite concerning, and I wanted to find out what a forward learning statement is. And a forward learning statement is a statement that's relating to the future of Novavax, its plans and its prospects. And um, I won't read it all out. I'll just read out a little bit that's underlined in red. Novavax cautions that these forward-looking statements are subject to numerous risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed or implied um, by forward-looking statements. Now, these risks and uncertainties include safety and efficacy. So I would say that this injection... The one that's being rolled out in the USA, it has no clinical safety data. It's had no checks, no balances, and the people that are receiving it are the clinical trial. And if we stay with injections, we can see that Moderna uh, are very busy bringing out um, a combined flu and COVID vaccine um, as separate sh- as as one as one shot but they're also thinking of bringing out RSV, flu and COVID too. So plenty more to be going on. And the next generation's coming up too. So we're not going to be needing to store them in freezers. Um, We're not going to be using multi-dose vials anymore. These injections are going to be uh, released in pre-filled syringes, and they're only going to need to go in the Fridge, uh, wonder why it wasn't that easy first time around, eh? Um, and then I want to look very quickly at needles because needles have been in the news. So if anybody's a little bit, uh, feels a little bit queasy talking about needles, they might just want to avoid the next one, one or two minutes. So the needle length for vaccines are, apparently should vary based on weight, Now in my day, it was always based on sight. So you'd use a different needle for whether you were giving a subcutaneous injection or whether you were giving an intramuscular injection. Um, And apparently this needle they're saying now should be based on weight. But how relevant is the needle? And I've been doing some deep diving and looking at mRNA research and past empirical papers. And I found this paper in the Lancet and it dates back to 2017 and for anybody watching if anyone's got some interpretation on this paper I would be really grateful to hear it so this is the safety and immunogenicity of our mRNA rabies vaccine in healthy adults an open label non-randomized prospective first in human phase one clinical trial but when you go and look at the paper And there you can see the findings. This was all based on a study taken in 2016. But I just want to read out the interpretation here. And you can freeze the screen for all the other details. It says, the first ever demonstration in human beings shows that a prophylactic mRNA-based candidate vaccine can induce boostable functional antibodies against a viral antigen when administered with a needle-free device. Although not when injected by a needle syringe, the vaccine was generally safe with a reasonable tolerability profile. So that opens up the big question, everybody, of should this mRNA, I mean, it should never have been rolled out in the first place. We know it's very dangerous. We're saying to people, if they've had it, please don't have any more. And if you have had it and you're worried, there's plenty of protocols and we've got all the details on the website. But if this is going to be used in a needle free, device, what does that actually look like? So I think we've got a short bit of video to see what a needle-free device looks like. The University of
2: Southampton in the UK is trialing a vaccine that uses needle-free technology to ease the delivery of COVID-19 shots. The injection uses a jet of air that pushes the vaccination into the skin, offering a possible alternative to people who fear needle-based shots. The vaccine was created by Professor Jonathan Heaney at the University of Cambridge and could be scaled up and
5: manufactured as a powder if the trial is successful. Um, So that's what we've got to look forward to. And now I just want to jump on quickly to drug shortages because we're seeing an awful lot of drug shortages. And I think we've got a little bit of video of the page of drug shortages. So you can see exactly how many there are at the moment. And you can see there that the list, as it scrolls up and up and up, it goes on and on and on. And we're receiving many reports from people all over Europe um, and the UK saying that they're not able to get their drugs and um, as you can see, it just, it just goes on. Um, but if we jump, if you want to just jump to the next slide because that list really does go on, um, one of the things that was slightly concerning for me was in the Times they're reporting a national shortage of ADHD medication um, and that uh, users were being asked to, or being told to ration their tablets. Now this is a, a very controversial, Subject, I'm not in favor of medicalizing ADHD, but I do believe that ADHD is part of the autism spectrum. And I just want to remind you of my article on the UK Column website, with the NHS long-term plan, you can see their point thirty-six medication of children on the autism spectrum and those with a learning disability will be reduced or even stopped. So clearly, you can see that this is a planned agenda. Um, but what they're replacing Ritalin and Concerto with is a drug called Alvents. And um, I would urge any parents or people watching that are having their drugs changed, please check the patient information leaflet first. So uh, let's go to the E. coli vaccine because we've been talking about E. coli a lot. We know that there's contamination of vials of the injection, some of uh, the vaccines with E. coli. And now we can see that Sanofi are in agreement with Janssen to develop an E. coli vaccine, Um, but who else is involved in uh, in, uh, Sanofi? Actually, let's go back to the MHRA, and there you can see our good friend, Professor Graham Cook, um, who's got conflicts of interest there, and you can see Sanofi on there. It always goes back, doesn't it, to the Uh, MHRA, Professor Graham Cook. And then let's look at the MMR vaccine because parents, thank you very much, you're being ever so wise. There's concern as there's a very low uptake on the MMR um, under five-year-olds and it's been at the lowest rate for 12 years. So there's a bit of Good news, but pharmacists, I'm afraid, are burning themselves out. They've got far more, far too much to do. Um, lots of pharmacists are complaining that they're completely overloaded. But uh, thanks to Dr. Ros Jones, she informed me that pharmacists were now offering children chicken uh, pox. Uh, vaccines. And this is Boots Pharmacy and you can see that it'll cost you £150 for two doses, long time since uh, my day when we were sent to chickenpox parties and measles parties to get it all over and done with as a youngster. And uh, back to the fear mongering again, I'm afraid swine flu apparently could return um, as uh, experts and those experts of the UKHSA. And I thought it's a bit ironic really, because they say the UKHSA is spooks. Well, the UKHSA are spooks. And then we've got charities now that are calling for the reintroduction of masks and social distancing. Um, so plenty of people uh, trying to sort of get on the fear bandwagon. And finally, as if we haven't got enough in the news with long COVID, we've now got long colds. But there is a difference between a long cold and long COVID in that a long cold lasts 37 weeks, and according to ITV uh, X. Uh, Long COVID lasts 64 weeks. So that's a quick whiz around a few of the health stories.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, Debbie. And of course, it's uh, beholden on all of us to keep our eyes on what's happening with these uh, medications and pharmaceutical products and not to get too distracted with other events that lead us to allow these things to carry on without anybody challenging them. Uh, Big thank you to one of our viewers who sent me a little email. Let's pop this up on screen. It said, uh, breaking news in Australia, re-COVID cover-up. I've not been able to find a copy of The Weekend Australian online, but I'm still trying. Rupert Murdoch just retired, so I wonder if this is his parting shot. Now, there was a little video clip with this, which I've shortened, uh, but it's quite interesting. Let's have a look.
8: Well, Australia is coming out yesterday. Weekend Australian. COVID cover up how science was silenced. Who'd ever believe it, guys? Front page of the Weekend Australian. There's Fauci's big head, so we've opened the, uh, we've opened it in Australia guys, and look what we get in the middle of the paper, the magazine, inside the COVID cover-up. Here they are guys, alright, look at this people, this is where Australia's gone, nothing to see here, who uses that comment a bit, guys, maybe I say eh? nothing to see here, well there's now something to see here. Secret research, spin, cover-ups, new revelations all about the likely oranges of the coronavirus are shocking.
0: Now, I'd just like to say an apologies to the gentleman that produced that video because I cut off a tiny bit at the end, which I think is important because he said we have helped make this happen. And what he's talking about is all the people in Australia, of course, that have been challenging what's gone on, spoken out, produced material they are the ones that have ultimately pushed this agenda to the fore. So he's quite right. We did uh, help that make, uh, or the Australian audience helped make that happen. And uh, a bit of good news on this one here. This is an email uh, talking about all-cause mortality in Japan. And the gentleman who sent it to me said this, you may be interested to know that today I was accosted in the street by a young lady Part of a group handing out leaflets about the current very high and unexplained all-cause mortality in Japan. I've attached pictures of both leaflets. This lady had severe heart problems for a year after receiving two COVID injections. People in Japan are waking up and hopefully there will be growing resistance to any new mRNA injections in the future. I'm happy to add explanations of the leaflets if required, but the graphs are clear I have not had time to watch the YouTube videos linked to the QR codes. Now, just to put this up for a little bit of evidence, I wasn't able to get the translations through on this, but the gentleman is a very trusted source, so I'm sure this is correct, and we must take this as some good news. Now, Debbie, I think you've got a little bit of time just to give us the latest on, well, it's the hot news, isn't it, on uh, electric vehicles.
5: Yeah, it is. I just wanted to revisit last week because we were talking about electric vehicles and I just want to just make a couple of notes with everybody. So electric vehicles, they'll need a new battery in their lifetime, an electric car and that will cost you anything between 14,000 and 30,000. They're more expensive to fix, 25% more expensive to fix. There aren't enough mechanics to fix them. Uh, Insurance companies are refusing to insure them. There's a lack of infrastructure to charge them and they set on fire. And if that isn't enough to put you off, my next question would be, Do you know who you're you're seeing in the NHS? Do you know what you're getting in the NHS? But do you know who you're parking next to? Because last night, Luton Airport car park was engulfed in flames. Um, And this has been a really serious fire. Um, Up to 1,200 cars were parked in this car park, and it literally just exploded. Um, And some people have been taken to hospital. I believe five people have been taken to hospital. And then uh, thanks to our great friend Cheryl Granger, who sent me this um, from Instagram uh, clearly showing that it would appear to be an electric car that seems to have started this now that all the flights from Luton are as as far as I'm aware still cancelled e- even now as we speak that there, uh, there is nothing flying from Luton so it's not just electric cars is it it's electric bikes and we've said for a very long time you know people are charging electric bikes in their hallways in in their bedrooms even and this um, article in the BBC came out of a uh, This is the 11th floor of a block of flats. And all I can say is, thank goodness, the cladding seemed to to work on that because I dread to think what might have happened if that had been a block similar to Grenfell that didn't have protective cladding on it. So that e-bike was on the 11th floor. And on close to my home here in Cornwall, in St. Austell down the road, we had sirens and all sorts going off the, the other week. And that was because another electric van um, had exploded outside this couple's house. They were asleep in bed. It was the neighbours that actually woke them up and pretty much saved their lives. And the next screenshot is is just a, a follow-on from that. And the lady, the wife, said that she believed the blaze was a result of the car, and it did blow up. And now she's lost her confidence in the safety. Well, that's quite a, a story, isn't it? To lose your confidence, your whole house goes up in fire. But even worse than that, apparently these electric cars are kidnapping The drivers, so this gentleman here, Brian Morrison, he had a £30,000 MG and it got stuck at 30 miles an hour And when he was driving back from Glasgow. So this is near to your patch here, David. And he was unable to stop. He was dodging red lights. He couldn't use his brakes and he had to be crashed, actually, into a police van in order to stop and apparently there are 100 million lines of software so what could possibly go wrong there so if that hasn't put you off having an electric car or an electric vehicle i'm not sure what will
1: Uh, right debbie are you going to show this little video clip
5: oh yes sorry yes this was the video that we missed from last week um and loads of people were asking to see it so this is this is scott's He's a YouTuber and he's got a little bit of information on electric vehicles for you.
8: Well, now electric cars have become more expensive to fill up than gasoline cars. So the one big advantage of electric cars is that they are cheaper to recharge than pouring gasoline, well, that's kind of vaporized. Well tell you I didn't warn you, the price of electricity is just gonna keep going up and this is the tip of the iceberg because when you buy gasoline there's a road tax that helps pay for the roads, guess what they'll start sticking on electricity bills, a road tax if everybody starts driving electric cars, because if they don't then we'll all be driving electric cars on roads that are full of holes, even worse than they are now, and of course it doesn't even include buying one of these chargers, paying an electrician to wire it up to your house, you add all this stuff in the myth of cheap electric cars is
5: just that—a pipe dream.
0: Yeah, brilliant.
5: Scotty Kilmer on YouTube—he's absolutely brilliant. Do do watch him.
0: Okay, uh, Debbie, thank you very much for that. We're going to end on brace yourselves. Uh, I had missed this, but luckily somebody sent it through to us. Uh, here's an Express article. Uh, One single word proves Tony Blair is really manipulating Keir Starmer and its worrying analysis. uh, Keir Starmer makes his most important speech as Labour leader today at the last conference before a general election, Uh, but he will be performing to Sir Tony Blair's script. And if you have a look at it, what is going on here? Well, apparently Tony Blair is now uh, a front runner to take over as chair of the World Economic Forum from Klaus Schwab.
1: Can't think of a better man, Brian.
0: (laughs) Can't think of a better man. Well, the, I say it all, utterly evil man. And of course, um, much of the globalist policy coming through the World Economic Forum. We'll leave it there. An extended news from the column today. Uh, We think that events uh, merited it. Uh, So thank you all for staying with us. And uh, we will be back at the same time on Friday for the news but we have got extra time uh, today in a few minutes. So if you're a subscriber, join us then. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.